Welcome to the 127 on the Mic podcast. This message was recorded by our college pastor, John Davison, as we walk through the book of Hebrews. We hope you enjoy. God, we, we thank you for an opportunity to worship. We thank you for an opportunity to gather. We thank you for college students and their passion, as we said, that just echoes loudly for you. It echoes loudly in worship. It echoes loudly often in how they live their lives, how they give, how they serve. And we pray that today is hopefully we see you more clearly through your word and the divine nature of Jesus, that that would change um, even that volume in us and how we see other people, how we love other people, how we live in this world would be different because of your word. And so we trust you to bring it to life by your spirit. Would it speak more clearly to us uh, than we've heard it before? Um, you're powerful enough to do that. I pray that you get credit for everything that takes place in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter one, here's kind of what's happening in this because it's really a repeat. We got through the first four verses in two weeks. We're gonna try to get through the end of chapter one today because it's, it's just a repeat of what happened in one through four. And the, so five through 14 is just the, the repeat of this. I wanna read it and then point out a few things. Starting in verse five, four, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the son, your throne, O God, it's important, he's talking to the son and he says, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. Verse 10, and in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak and they will be changed like clothing, but you are the same and your years will never end. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? And so again, we looked at this chart. It's not gonna be up on the screen, but we looked at this chart that connected kind of this, the, the verse one to verse four and verse two to verse three, and it kind of jumped all the way around. It does the same thing here at the beginning of Hebrews because Jesus is appointed as the royal heir in verse two. He's appointed as the royal heir in verse five all the way through verse nine. He's the mediator. He's the agent of creation in the second half of verse two. He's the mediator, the agent of creation in verse 10. His eternal nature, his preexistent glory is on display in verse 3. His unchanging eternal nature is on display in verse 11 and 12. He's exalted at God's right hand in the end of verse 3. He's exalted at God's right hand at the end of verse 13. And so we get now the expanded version of the first four verses through the next, what is that, nine verses, 10, I think, if you add them all together. And why, why does this happen? Albert Albert Muller in Exalting Jesus in Hebrews says this, and I love this explanation. He says it better than I could. It is important to remember that we are not merely reading the author's random devotional reflections when he references different sections of the Old Testament. Through the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is providing his own inerrant, infallible commentary on the Old Testament. This is a cool thought. The Holy Spirit is providing a commentary of the Old Testament now that we have a clearer view of what was spoken of in the Old Testament because of Jesus. 
He says this, in other words, we are learning from the author of Hebrews himself the importance of reading Scripture in the light of the rest of Scripture, specifically in the light of the New Testament. We are here, we have here the Holy Spirit's own commentary of the very Old Testament Scriptures that he inspired. And so the guy who wrote it is now writing the commentary on the stuff that he wrote as he writes it. This big circle, that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's okay, we won't figure it out, but it's just really good. This is what we have here, Old Testament commentary from the Holy Spirit. So let's start in verse five. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. So what he's doing here is he laid his case legally in verses one through four. And as a good lawyer would, he's circling back now and making his case stronger. And he's using the Old Testament, which these Jewish Christians would understand pretty clearly to help prove this case. Again, you are my son. This is the clear idea that's presented all in the first half of your Bible in the Old Testament. Um, And what we see in there is that angels are sometimes called sons, but they are never called the son of God. They get the title sons, but they're never sons of God. And so the author of Hebrews is pushing forth really this this idea that the scriptures that he is using are speaking clearly about Jesus, even though when they were written, they were speaking about David. And this is what he does. The first one, you might have talked about this in Bible study, is Psalm 2-7. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. And that capital S son there is talking about David, but this is a messianic psalm now that we know the end. Okay, this is the bonus because we get to read the Old Testament in light of what Jesus did. And so we can take for what it was written to then and then apply it to what we know now. So this messianic psalm is fulfilling the promise not only that was proclaimed to David, but also proclaimed to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to all of these heroes of the faith all throughout the Old Testament. Because then you read verses like Acts 13, 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, I love that that it is quoted in Acts, <laughs> you are my son today, I have become your father. And so he's, he's pointing to, yes, it was to David, but we want this to be about Jesus because now we know about Jesus. He also mentioned 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises David this everlasting throne, what he calls is an irrevocable dynasty. This is what you're going to get. And it's, it's not like the author just did a Google search and he's like, hey, where is the son in the Old Testament? And let's pull those verses and make an application to them as I'm writing. What he finds here and what he quotes here is a kingship passage in 2 Samuel where it helps us understand that yes, David has this irrevocable dynasty, but the reason that he has it is because of Jesus, not because of David. And Jesus becomes the fulfillment of this covenant promise. And to help make the connection there, if you want to make this note, you probably didn't flip back there, but in 2 Samuel 7, it's a cool chapter to explore. In in 2 Samuel 7, 13, the verse before, he says this, he is the one who will build a house for my name. 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so you go, he is the one, David is the one that's gonna build this house and I'm gonna establish his throne forever. But then you read Hebrews 3, 3, for Jesus is considered more worthy of glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. And so what the author of Hebrews says is that Jesus has built the house. We see it in 2 Samuel, someone's gonna build the house. Now Jesus has built it. And, and in building the house, you're gonna hear about this this week, a lot in Bible study. If you're not in Bible study, go, that's my commercial, uh, because you're gonna be in chapter two. You're gonna hear a lot about sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and this kind of house conversation. If Jesus built the house, then Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. He built it and then he's faithful over it. And we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope for which we boast. It's a, a sweet promise. Jesus builds the house. He stands with you in the house. And we get this, we're gonna get to this passage in Hebrews chapter two, probably in a month or so. Um, you're gonna see it in Bible study, but it says this, for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory us, it was entirely appropriate that God for whom and through whom all things exist should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters saying, I will, pro I will proclaim your name to my brothers and my sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. So that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all of their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. We are his family. He stands in the gap for his family. He rules over the household that is his family, and we can trust that. He is, he is for you. I don't get it. Sometimes it irritates me that he's for me because I know my sin nature, but he's for me. He calls me son. He calls me brother. And, and all of that is incredible news because of his position, which we're gonna continue to see. The, the final quotation that we see in verse six comes from Deuteronomy 32, 43, probably. There's a little bit of looseness in here, but we're gonna explain it. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. In the original context, the statement about the angels bowing down to worship is in reference, of course, to God. But what the Hebrew writer here is doing is he's identifying God as Jesus, or he's elevating Jesus to the stature that he is divine. And in, and in doing so, as he elevates him, then this argument becomes really clear. The angels worship Christ. It's not the Christ who worships the angels. The angels declared the birth of Christ, not, de, not, the, not Christ who is declaring the ministry of angels. The angels are called lowercase s sons every so often, but he gets the name that is the son of God that he inherits from that Davidic covenant promise handed down to him. Now, there's, there's a little side note here uh, that I have to point out because I, I teach from the CSB. This is, this is just random, but I had to tell you that. I teach from the CSB often because it, it reads easier. And uh, I study, though, in the ESV. And so when I, when I go back to the original 
when I go to the ESV version of Deuteronomy 32, it reads different than what it does in the CSB. What I put up there is the ESV. Some of you are like, hey, that lines up. The CSB like leaves out part of this. And I get a little irritated at that. Now there's a reason that this happens. The CSB grabs this, this verse, which says, rejoice, o, rejoice you nations concerning his people, for he will avenge the blood with his servants. Leaves out that little middle section, all gods bow down to him, part of that. Why? The CSB pulls from the Masoretic text. Um, some of you don't know what that is and you don't care. The ESV got their translation, which is kind of just a cool thing. They got their translation from the Qumram, which is the part of the, D the Dead Sea Scrolls that was found in Cave 4. And, and you're like, what is that? It's the fourth cave. The Cave 4 in the Dead Sea, they found these scrolls. And in the scrolls, it literally says sons of God. And this is important. When you say rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. Right there, it just basically means all sons of God. And in that, anytime in the Old Testament that you see sons of God, it's just referring to angels. And so you read that and it's like, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all the angels. And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to help us understand when he quotes that in 6. Again, he, he brings, when he brings his firstborn into the world and he says, let all of God's angels worship him. This is what he's saying. In the Old Testament, the angels bow down to God. In the New Testament, the angels bow down to Jesus. Now in the Trinity, those are the same person and different people. And so, yes, that should be mind-blowing because the attributes of God should mess with your brain a little bit. But this is the point that the author is trying to make here. So let's keep going from there. Verse seven. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the sun, your throne, God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. And you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like clothing, but you are the same, and your years will never end. In verse 7, he quotes from Psalm 104.4. says this, And making the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. In God's creative power, it is like infinite creativity, he decides that he is going to make the winds his mouthpiece, his messengers. He's going to make flames of fire the thing that serves him. This is just putting God's creative authority and power on display. These flames of fire, they enjoy God's presence. They carry out his purposes, but they are only what? Servants. And so he's, he's pointing towards these angels who do pretty incredible things. They are the messengers of God. They are the servants of God. They're things that maybe we long for. He gives them pretty incredible, like creative attributes that go along with them, but they are just servants in God's court. And the contrast is made starting in verse eight, where God says that, yes, the angels are only servants, but the son is divine. Reading verse eight again, but to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of justice. He connects that. This, this is coming from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. 
says this, your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of justice. Like, yeah, I just read that. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, comma, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. This is a royal psalm. It is to honor the king of Israel. Truth, righteousness, justice, they are ascribed to you, O king. Some of you may be just instantly jumping over to that capital G, God. And you're going, your throne, God. Okay, uh, this is a royal psalm, and it's going to David. Is he calling David God? Or is it speaking to God the Father? Or is it speaking about Jesus? The answer to that is yes. It's all of those things, because this is what the Bible can do. And so it is, it is right. In fact, the Bible will often do this to call People back then, capital G, gods, it, that is speaking towards David. Side note, this happens in Exodus 7.1. The Lord answered Moses, see how I have made you God to Pharaoh. You are the one, you and Aaron, your brother, are going to be prophets to him. In Psalm 82.1, God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. And that God that starts there at the beginning, you could go, it's talking about God the Father. Yes, but it's also talking about the judges of Israel who are standing there pronouncing judgment to the other lowercase gods. And so the Bible is allowed to do this. You're like, hey, this kind of irritates me. It irritates me a little bit too. But when you read it in light of what we now know, in light of what Jesus has done and has accomplished, we, we get a different insight into the verse. And this is how you should read the Old Testament. This is why we should never unhitch ourselves to the Old Testament. It's why the Old Testament is of high value and beautiful and worth all of your time that you spend in it to encourage you in your walk with God. Because if you will read the Old Testament in light of what Jesus has done with the understanding that Jesus fulfills this psalm, Jesus fulfills all of the psalms, Jesus fulfilling all of the prophecy, and, and kind of read it with a Jesus lens, then you begin to understand like, why the entire chapter of Isaiah 9 really comes to life. And you get to see scripture in a different way because what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's not only showing us that Jesus has fulfilled the covenant promise that's made to David, he's also showing us that he is God. Not only did he fulfill with his life on earth these, these promises that were made of old, he's also God in the flesh and God the Son, he is divine. And in doing so, he begins to lay a foundation for the Trinity. Now I'm careful here. Because in laying the foundation for the Trinity, you kind of get excited that you're going to understand it. You're not. Because, I mean, angels surround the throne of God. The Son sits on the throne of God. Angels are sent out as messengers. Christ, the anointed one, is the one who's sending them out as messengers, and in his obedience on this earth as man, he gets an eternal reign beside God the Father at his right hand forever. But they are one. And I said this to our Bible study leaders, how come he's not sitting on his lap? Why does he need another seat? Because they are one, but they are two. And there's a third one, the Spirit. And it's confusing. My seminary professors couldn't explain it to me. I don't dare try to explain it to you especially in light of this, but we know that Jesus existed as a man on this earth and what he accomplished as man got our salvation. 
but he was also 100% God, and what he accomplished on this earth now echoes in eternity in his divine nature, in his elevation above the angels. And in verse 10, the quotation in verse 10 comes from Psalm 102, 25 through 27. So verse 10 says, and in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth. Psalm 102, 25 says, long ago, you established the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them like a garment and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years will never end. The, the sun, we've already talked about this, but the sun is greater than the angels because he's the creator. The sun is greater than the angels also because he's eternal. And the author contrasts this to the created world that is wearing out like an old shirt. Uh, I posted a picture of this and I think I had to send it to Jason too. This was two years ago, I believe, when this happened. I have a shirt at my house that I will occasionally sleep in. And it's like the old guy's sleep shirt. Um, that is from 1996. Old, yeah. <laughs> Older than everybody in here, basically, except for Jason. Um, it was from a ski trip that our youth ministry took. And I don't think they make shirts like they used to, because man, this thing is glorious. And, and it's comfortable. But this is what's happening to it. It's starting to fall apart. You have to be careful when you wash it. We put it in the washing machine and we just all get around it. And we're like, dear Lord, just please protect this. And like we... And Koa, our dog, likes to fight, and her, she's a pansy. And so how she fights is she, she grabs your shirt and just kind of tugs on it a little bit. And now the shirt's starting to kind of be unraveled. This is the idea here. Now, some of you have some old clothes that you're just begging the Lord not to fall apart. But this is what he's saying. The author has identified Jesus as divine. He has the, the freedom to, to quote Psalms like this and put Jesus in their place. When it goes, hey, long ago, you've established the earth. It's talking about God. And now the author of Hebrews is going, long ago, Jesus, you established the earth. Hey, long ago, the heavens were the work of your hand, God. No, the heavens were the work of Jesus's hands. And even that, that creation is going to fail like clothing. It is fading. It's being just worn out. It, it's showing the wear and tear but you never fade. And, and this, again, it kind of points us into the Trinity aspect. The author is taking the liberty to take anything that was about God in the Old Testament and making it about Jesus because he can. And, and you can do that with a lot of verses. Here's just a couple. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You go, that's about Jesus. We know the end of the story. Well, it's actually from Joel 3, 2, and it's talking about God, the Father. 2 Timothy 2.19, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. You're like, that's about Jesus. We know that he knows my name. We know that we're his. That's quoting from Numbers 16.5, and it's 100% about God, but it can be about Jesus. This is the Trinity, and the author is really presenting this to a bunch of Jewish Christians who have a deep understanding of God in the Old Testament scriptures, and so this is messing with the brain in the same way that it should mess with yours, probably even more for them. Let's keep going. The only explanation that we see for this Trinitarian theology beneath the surface of this text is the notion that Jesus laid the foundation of the earth and then it helps us understand that through Jesus, the Son of God, all things were made, all things were created. It also 
highlights just really clearly, we talked about the clothing aspect of this, but it highlights really clearly this idea that we need to get into our heads. There's a clear distinction between creator and created. And often we as created want to roll up into the role of creator. It's the downfall of Satan who was created, who wanted to be creator. And and often we do that too. You wanna write your own story. You're like, I don't wanna be God, but you pretend that you are a lot. I'm gonna go ahead and ordain my next steps myself. I'm gonna go ahead and grab the things that God didn't intend for me to have, but I want them. And so when he says you should have no idols before me, what he's saying is that you are created. You can't play the role of creator. And this is important for us because what are you according to this verse in Hebrews? You're an old shirt. It's gonna get worn out. God's gonna roll you up one day. (laughs) That's a weird way to say that. You're fading, you're fragile. And you along with all created things, including this planet that we're spinning around, other created things on are, are just fading away. But he is eternal. The sun is permanent. And in the created order, we're all subject to change. We're all going to decay. Our, we're ultimately just going to be destroyed. The person of Christ is unending. He's unchanging. His years have no end. He knows no change, which is one of the important reasons why you should put your trust and hope in him who will take that fading away part of you and make it eternal. It's a cool promise wrapped up in Hebrews. Let's go to the last verses. Hebrews 13 and 14. Now, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? The the final Old Testament citation in this book comes from Psalm 110. We're gonna hear about Psalm 110 a lot in Hebrews. He likes to go back to this verse. We're just gonna start in verse one. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. The author here ends his argument. I just want to say the Holy Spirit ends his his, uh, cool little commentary of the Old Testament with this. To which of the angels has he ever said? Verse five. To which of the angels has he ever said? Verse 13. And then he communicates through Psalm 110 that God has promised us that the Messiah was going to have dominion forever over the world. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And you can read that and go, this is the declaration of the Lord to David. Now we read it. This is the declaration of Yahweh to Jehovah. This is the declaration of God the Father to God the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And, And so we take that and we go, okay, here's the Trinity again. Here's the the singular person of the Son of God being encouraged by God the Father of his future position and knowing that he's the agent of creation, that he is the agent of redemption, which is an important part of this. Uh, This place that he now sits was never intended for the angels. It It is his throne and it is an eternal throne. And this location that he's at shows us good news that we heard last week and it's gonna echo for a while in Hebrews that Jesus's work as high priest is done. He doesn't have to do any more. He doesn't have to make any more sacrifices. He just gets to go and sit at God's right hand. The work is finished and it's good news for us because our sin is atoned for. Our shame is no more. He's taken all of those things on himself. And so we we can look at this and we go, okay, Jesus knows this Psalm. 
The author of Hebrews knows this psalm, but Jesus uses it in Matthew chapter 22. Some of you are thinking about this, hopefully. The Pharisees are asking Jesus how uh, he could be both David's Lord and son. Because according to verse 1, David's heir was also his Lord. And so this is what Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two forty-one. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, well, he's David's. Well, he asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all. From that day, no one dared to question him anymore. Like I love, Jesus uses this verse that is echoed again in Hebrews to, to answer a question that they didn't have the right answer for. And we get all the way to Hebrews and we go, hey, here's the, here's the answer. Jesus is both human and divine. He is 100% both of those things. He is both David's son as a human and he is David's Lord as the son of God. And so this is how this comes alive. Jesus knew it was coming. I think Jesus knew that there's this guy, we don't know who it is, is going to write this book. Uh, it's going to confuse some people, but he's going to use this verse again. So I'm going to go ahead and throw it out while I'm on this earth and see what you do with it. The smartest men in the world, the Pharisees, they don't have an answer. And we have to get all the way to the end after we see what Jesus accomplished in his life to get the answer of that. He is both human and divine. He is David's son and he is David's Lord. And here's this contrast between the, the reign of Christ and the angelic servants in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? It speaks to the role of angels in the lives of God's people. They are these ministering spirits who are sent out for our good. And you're like, hey, what else do they do? What's the ministry that they have? Here's the podcast commercial. If you haven't listened to the podcast, last three weeks we've been talking about it. Go listen to it. We answer some of those questions. Send Zach more of your questions. If you haven't listened to it, it will help you. We don't, I don't know how we got on the angel thing. It wasn't even planned. Somebody asked the question a while back. It just happened to fall right here, and that's what the Holy Spirit do. And so go listen to it. But what this passage does is it gives us a clear understanding of the function of angels within God's purposes of redemption, but you can't miss the main points of this passage. I know a lot of you have angel questions. You are asking angel questions at Bible study. That's not the main point of this passage. Angels are spirits that minister to the body of Christ, and in that they have been sent out by Christ himself. Angels are indeed remarkable creatures, but they pale in comparison to the glory of the Redeemer, to the, to the glory of the Son of God, which is Jesus. He's superior to every angel, the entire host of them. He's superior to them all. And so so as we close, this is, this is the way that I want you to think. In Hebrews 1, the, the supremacy of Jesus as the Son on his throne, being tied to the Davidic king as the ruler of the world, the divinity and the humanity of the Son are central to this argument. It's going to come alive much more in Hebrews chapter 2, that, that human nature of him. The angels worshiped him. He was raised from the dead. He was exalted. And as God now, he rules over all. He's the agent of creation. He holds you together. And he built a house that you get invited into and given a new name and given a new right. And, and you're adopted. 
You are sons and brothers and sisters and daughters, all just kind of wrapped up in this. But he didn't only just build a house, he reigns over the house. He has a priestly rule over the house, and he's for you. And I don't get it why he's for me, but he is. He's eternal. He's unchanging. And when you contrast him with the angels who are the servants that carry out God's will, he is superior to them. He's divine, and he rules over all. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to do here is to encourage the readers to never go back to the comfort that is the angels. As the band comes up, here's, here's the thought. The same challenge that the author of Hebrews is throwing at us, and really to them, that the comfort of angels is not something that you ever need to return to because of God, what he accomplished through Jesus and Jesus' rightful place now, then you, in your seek, your pursuit, your desire for Jesus, this is what you often do. You often will build a foundation on things that do not last. You will build a foundation on things that are fading away. And when things are difficult in your relationship with Christ, you want to go back to something that you think comforts you. And, and this is what the author is saying to those Jewish believers. Like, I understand that the angels were the messengers of God's word. I understand that they delivered the law to you. I understand that they are, they are worthy of some sort of comfort. They are no more. They pale in comparison to, to Jesus. And the only way that we get to that point as believers is if you would daily more clearly see him, because this is what I know, because this is the conversations that I have with you. When, when life gets difficult, when you have a sin struggle, when, when things just don't go your way, instead of running to Jesus that's greater than all of that, in fact, he holds all of that thing together. In fact, he invited you into a house that he created and he allows you to enjoy the things of earth as just good gifts to you. But instead you will run to the things that he created to find comfort instead of running to the creator. And in that, you shortchange yourself this is important. You, you shortchange the comfort and the joy that can be found in running to a perfect, loving Savior and going, would you comfort me? Would you satisfy my needs according to your riches and glory? And instead you run to this created thing. So you shortchange yourself, but you shortchange your testimony because the world is watching and you wanna declare loudly that your God is good and he's providing all of your riches and he's all of those things. But when life gets tough, you run to something else. You pacify yourself of some drug, some addiction, some thing. And instead going in the darkest of times and in the sweetest of times, my comfort is in my God and in nothing else. And this is what he's trying to declare loudly to us. Would it be so for you would the Spirit now just be stirring in your mind the things that you have found comfort in that are outside of Jesus? And you may even be outside of a relationship with God and you're going, my comfort is in my knowledge. My comfort is in all of these things that I'm building that are outside of God. And you know, if you're honest, all of those things are falling short and they do not satisfy. Or as believers in this room, you're just, you're running to stuff that you know you've made idols and you're not laying them down. And now God is screaming to you, lay those down and run to the creator instead of the created things. May the Spirit stir within you what those are, and then you rightly respond to him in worship. Let me pray, and then we'll sing. God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's powerful, that it's effective, that it's living. 
And we thank you for the unknown author of Hebrews, but more so we thank you for the spirit providing us direction that points us back to the Old Testament that so often we fade away from that just declares loudly that Jesus is God, that Jesus is higher than those things. We thank you for his life lived, what he accomplished for us on the cross. And, and that is the sweetest thing to me. But I also wanna step outside of that. We thank you for the life that he now lives. We thank you that he reigns at the right hand. We thank you that he is the agent of creation, but he also holds it all together. We thank you that for some reason you invited us into your family to be a part of the story and our comfort is found in you and in nothing else. It's the way that you created it and it's the way that it must be. And so for those of us in this room that have built little idols in different places of our lives that we run to, to worship, to find some sort of comfort, would you destroy those by your spirit tonight? And will we learn to lay those down and run to the God, to the Father, to the Son that provides all of the comfort that we need? We thank you for your position that it's greater May that be stirred within us and we respond in the right way. We trust you to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.